Well, good morning. My name is Doug Swenson. For those of you who don't know, I'm one of the elders here at CRC, and I get to be up here once every great, great while, I guess. <clears throat> Not very often. We're going to be talking about blood this morning. Real, real human blood, the kind that when you see it, there's some pain involved. It might be small, it might be great, but if you see some blood, that indicates that there's some hurt going on, some pain going on. And for some of us, that causes a little bit of squeamishness in our stomach. And in fact, if, if you want to have a good laugh at my expense, you can ask my wife how I dealt with some of her blood shortly after we were married one time. So I won't uh, fill you in on the story. You'll have to ask her about that. But fortunately, for people like me, we're going to be talking about the spiritual effects of the actual human blood of Jesus, our Savior. So hopefully I won't uh, be affected by that at all this morning. So we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. And we're going to concentrate most of the time on Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But we'll read the, from the beginning of the chapter just to get some good context for uh, what's going on there. Before we do that, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your presence here with us this morning. Thank you for your spirit that has promised to be here, and we just ask that you would open our hearts, open our eyes to see from your word. Your word is sharp. It divides, it, it enters us, it pierces us, and we ask that you would do that this morning because it's only your spirit that can do that. We are unable to understand these things on our own, and we need you to discern them for us, to speak to us, and so we ask that you would do that in your name this morning. Amen. Hebrews 9, starting with verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a sec second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that was budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, 
which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink, various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, and not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. One of the reasons that the book of Hebrews was written was because there were some Jewish believers that were being tempted to go back to that old system, the old law, the old sacrifices. They were moving from what Christ had come to do, what Christ had given them, back to what for them was familiar. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they had been doing this system of sacrifices and uh, according to the law that God had given to Moses. And here in chapter 9, we're right in the midst of that author's argument that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Old Testament law all the old covenant that God had made with his people. And this system of animal sacrifices and worship that was changing to something much better. So we're right in the middle of that point that the author is trying to make, that that Jesus is so much better than what they have been doing. So in chapters 8, 9, and 10 here, we read some phrases like, becoming obsolete, ready to vanish away, abolishes the first covenant, a change in the law. Former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses. So all these phrases indicate that something is changing. Something is going on here that's different than what has been happening for literally hundreds and hundreds of years for the Jewish people. Basically, what we're seeing is the transition from a system of law to a system of grace. The law says, I must do something for God. It makes demands on me. And I quickly realize that I cannot meet those demands that the law puts on me. On the other hand, grace is God doing something for me. The laws are still there, 
and they're good and righteous. But God says, I will fulfill those laws, demands in you. I will be the one who fulfills the law for you. Now, there's approximately 50 chapters in the Old Testament that deal with the Levitical priest, with the tabernacle worship, with animal sacrifices for the sins of the people. And here in the first 10 verses of chapter 9, the author gives us a very brief but a very concise summary of those 50 chapters. We're not going to go back and look at any of those 50 chapters, otherwise we'd be here all day. But the author gives us a very, very good summary of what those 50 chapters entail. He briefly describes the tabernacle, what was in it, what the priest's duties were. And he says in verse 5, he actually cannot go into detail about all this because it's, it's almost like he doesn't want to go into detail because he's got something better to tell us. You know how it is when you've got a story you want to tell to somebody and it's almost like, skip the details, let's get to the important part. I want to tell you what really happened. Um, Tim and Maria shared some details this morning, but it was almost like, you got to come later to heal the real thing here. So that's almost what the author is, is getting at here. He's got something much, much better to explain to us. There's an indication of that in verses 8 and 9. And the New American Standard kind of maybe clarifies that a little bit better. It says, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the time then present, according to which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. So there was something about that first tabernacle, that first system, that was not good enough. It could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. And everything at that point, uh, all that we've read here, the articles in the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, the building itself, was primarily a symbol of something better to come, something greater that would be coming for the people. And you'll recall that it was only the high priest that could enter the holiest place of the tabernacle, and he could only do that one time a year. And the implication of is that at some point, other people are going to be able to enter that as well. At some point in the future, that's going to be opened for ordinary people. But it just isn't ready yet. This arrangement was good and right for that present time, but it was only a symbol of the better things that were coming. And the gifts, the sacrifices that the people had to make were only good enough for the outside of us. That outward forgiveness of sins, the things that the people had done that they needed forgiveness for. But it could not do anything about what was inside of us, our conscience, our heart attitude. The law was good in and of itself and perfect and righteous, but it was actually the people 
themselves and what was inside of them that was wrong. And the system couldn't bring a change for the inside of what was inside of people until we get to verse 11. And it starts out with the word but. One of those short three-letter small words in the Bible that sometimes are the most important words that we can pay attention to. But, of, by, from. Uh, they, they indicate that something's happening there. And so when he starts out with that word, but, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So Christ did not enter the earthly tabernacle. He entered the real one, the more perfect one, that was not made of this creation. And verse 12 goes on, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So something better has come here. A person has come. A better qualified person than any of the high priests. A person who is actually the sacrifice himself, namely Jesus. And the contrast is being made here between the earthly and the heavenly, the temporary and that which is eternal, that which is seen, that we can see and touch, and what cannot be seen and touched because it's in the spiritual realm. It's the real thing. The emphasis here in verse 12 is on he, on Jesus and what he's done. We can't tell that in our English translation very well, but um, I had Ron Christensen help me out a little bit with some of this in the original language, and he explained to me that this verse here, in verse 12, that everything hinges on he. The total emphasis is on Jesus and what he's done. In fact, some of our English translations will add the word himself. They'll say, he himself entered, just to emphasize the fact that it was Jesus that was doing all of this. He was not an ordinary high priest. No one else had a part in all of this, particularly you and me. None of us had anything to do with Jesus entering that most holy place to secure our redemption. There's more of a contrast here too, that in that Jesus entered once, not repeatedly year after year as the high priest had to do. They, they were required to do it, but they could only do it once a year. But they had to do it over and over and over again. Whereas Jesus did it once, and that was sufficient. That was all he had to do. The word all here in verse 12, it says, he entered once for all into the holy places. That's an indication of time, not of quantity. So in other words, we could say 
He entered once for all time. He didn't enter once for all people, but he entered once for all time. So it's simply a matter of time here. It, it doesn't mean that, that he did that for everybody. It simply means that it never has to be done again. He did it once, he completed it, and it it's, doesn't have to be done again. The tense of the verb here indicates the same idea. It's in the past tense that indicates that the action has been completed. It's finished. And it cannot be undone. The action of Jesus entering for us is over and done with. It's finished. This idea is repeated later on in chapter 9, verse 27, where it says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, speaking of Jesus. Or again in chapter 10, verse 12, it says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Again, the emphasis is on Jesus and what he has done. It's not about us. It's always all about Jesus. So what did his blood accomplish for us? Well, look at the last phrase there in verse 12, if you will. Thus securing an eternal redemption. So why was that necessary? Who needed redemption? What is redemption anyway to begin with? A few weeks ago, I was reading an article in the opinion page of the Sunday paper, and I ran across this remark. The author, the subject of the article had nothing to do with spiritual matters or religion or anything of that sort. But all of a sudden, in the middle of the article, this popped out at me. And the author said, it reminds me of my Catholic formation in which I was taught we are born with original sin. I don't believe in original sin. End quote. Now, I'm not sure what the author means or what their definition is of original sin because there was no explanation. It was just out of the blue. I don't believe in original sin. And so I don't know what, you, what he or she, I'm not even sure who it was, what they meant by that or what their definition of it was. But the reality is for you and me and every other human being on the face of this earth that we come into this world as sinners. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about that. When we're born, we are sinners. And the Apostle Paul, in the first chapter of Romans, he describes some of our characteristics that we have. He lists them. He says, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We do not honor God or give him thanks. We have a depraved mind. We do not seek God. We are in bondage to sin. Our mind is set on the flesh. And all of these things are the evidence that we are sinners as we come into this world. Our sin has separated us from God. And we can't do anything on our own to restore that relationship. 
Our sin has created a debt that's unpayable. It's insurmountable. We can't declare bankruptcy over it. There is no way that we can get out from under this debt that our sin has caused. We need help from outside of ourselves because we can't do it on our own. And Christ has provided that through his blood as the payment for our debt. That's really what redeemed is all about. Redeemed has that concept concept of a debt being repaid or something being paid to set us free. In the New Testament times, it was often affiliated with the idea about slavery. And the people back then understood completely and literally what it meant to be a slave and how slaves could be redeemed if a price was paid for their freedom. That's where that that word redeemed comes from. And we have that debt that needs to be repaid as well. It's a spiritual debt. It's a debt because of our sin. But by believing that Christ has paid the penalty for us, that redemption includes us. It's also an eternal redemption. That that phrase says, thus securing an eternal redemption. Just as Jesus entered that holy place once for all time, never having to repeat it, our redemption is secured for eternity. Jesus is not going to die again for our redemption. He secured it once. And he will not let us go. What he has begun in us, he is going to complete it. So, in the terms that scripture uses, if you by faith have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you've been saved, or you've been born again. You've been reconciled back to God. You're a new creation in him. You've been made a child of God. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. You've been made alive in him, whereas once you were dead. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. That is what Christ's blood has secured for us who believe in that. So, if that's true of you this morning, if you trusted in Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, what do you do when you start talking to yourself, or maybe a better way to put it is when yourself starts talking to you and it's saying things like, Why do you keep on sinning all the time? Or when are you ever going to become a better Christian? Why are you always getting so upset with your kids or your spouse or your boss or your neighbors or you fill in the blank? Or why aren't you living a life that is pleasing to God? Or... 
Maybe you identify with that man in Romans chapter 7. Why do I do what I don't want to do? And why don't I do what I want to do? Whenever I read that, I have to read it again because I can't comprehend what he's trying to get at here. Why do I do what I don't want to do? And why don't I do what I want to do? What do you do when that little voice inside of you is asking you those questions? Or you feel like you're a failure? Well, when we get that sense, when we have that sense of failure or unworthiness or worthlessness, we sense that we are not living a holy life, we tend to blame it on ourselves, on our own inability to do something. So our tendency is to demand more of ourselves. We tend to demand You better read the Bible longer. You better spend more time in your quiet time. You better spend more time praying. You you better spend more time more often coming to the worship service. Maybe you should sing a little louder. Maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do that. Maybe you should do more and more and more of this or that or something else. And what we do when we talk like that to ourselves, we're simply placing ourselves back under the law, just like the people that the book of Hebrews is being written to. They wanted to go back to the system that was outward, that could forgive their sins, but had nothing to do with their heart attitude. And we want to do the same thing often. We want a bunch of do's and don'ts. We often think, well, why didn't God write us a theological textbook that all we got to do is look up in the index, go to page such and such, do this when you feel like this, or do that? He didn't do that for us. He didn't give us a bunch of do's and don'ts to do, So what do we do? How do we overcome that circumstance or that situation? Well, this morning I'd like to offer to you three different places to look for that. One is the last couple verses in our passage here, verses 13 and 14. The second is Paul's response to the dilemma in Romans 7. And the third place... I'm going to use the verse of a song that we've sung here occasionally during our worship service. So, first of all, look with me at verses 13 and 14 in the ninth chapter of Hebrews here. Again, he's in the middle of explaining why Jesus is so much better. 13, verse 13 says, For at the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, that's that outward part of us, those sins that we've committed, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit 
offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ here in verse 14 is purifying our conscience. Now the tense of the verb here is different than the tense back up in verses 11 and 12. There it was more that past tense, what Christ has done in the past and he's not going to redo again. Here in verse 14, it's in the future tense. It's something that that God has started and he's going to continue it on into the future. So right now, the blood of Christ is at work in you and me and those who believe in him. Right now, it's cleansing, it's purifying, it's renewing, it's remaking us. Right now, it's doing that. Now, when we talk about something pure, about being pure, it usually means we're talking about something that does not have any additives in it. Nothing else besides the pure thing. No impurities are mixed in with it. Nothing foreign has been mixed into that which is pure. And our natural energy, our natural flesh, as the Bible talks about it, is present in all of us. And the outcoming or the outworking of that natural energy or that flesh in us is what the Bible calls here dead works, something that has no life to it, something that that is dead in and of itself because it comes from something that has no life in it. Anything we do that is not dependent on God comes from our natural life or our fleshly life. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John, he said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, it's always going to be that way. It's not going to be anything different. It is always going to be flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then he tells Nicodemus, why do you marvel that you have to be born again? Our flesh is always going to be flesh. And so we need to be reborn of the spirit. Our flesh simply brings glory to us. What we do, other people will praise. Other people will thank us for doing that. The things of the spirit will bring glory to God. It's a matter of origin. Where does it come from? Where does our life come from? Ourselves? Our own efforts? Or is it the spirit that's working his life out through us? The source is the determining factor there because that determines whether or not our life is pure or not, or whether those works have any life in them or not, or whether they're simply dead. It's because our spirit and our flesh don't mix very well. 
In fact, Paul says in Galatians, they're in opposition to each other. They're butting heads with each other, if you will. If the source of our works is Christ and his spirit, it will be life-giving to those that we're giving to. But if the source of our works is our own energy, our own flesh, the result is going to be a dead work, no matter how hard we try to make it real. It might look good from a world's perspective, but there isn't any real life to it. So how does this work out in practical terms? What do we do in practice with it? Well, one thing it's not, it's not to work harder at doing it. That's just putting more and more of our own energy into it. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, he tells us, As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You received Christ by faith in what he has done. Well, you walk in him in that same way, by faith in what he has done and by faith in what he is currently doing in you. Because you continue to grow in him by faith in him as he continues to work in yourself. It's always about what Jesus has done. Always. It's never about what you and I do. The reason for that is because the one who does the work is the one who gets the glory. Because God is not going to give his glory to anybody else, that means that he alone has to do the work. So when we usurp that from him and try to do it ourselves, that's when we start producing those things that have no life in them. Second place to look for help is what Paul says right at the end of chapter 7 in Romans. He's just gone through this sense of despair. Why am I doing what I'm doing when I don't want to do it? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's at the point of despair, it sounds like. Well, the next word that he utters, the next verse the end of the chapter, chapter 7, is thanks. It seems like a very odd place to start being thankful. But that's exactly where he goes. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's recognizing that he needs to thank Jesus for what he's done. When do we thank people? We typically thank them after they've either done something for us or they've given us something. We usually don't thank them before something happens. Well, that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. He's thanking God because God has already overcome for him. Everything that we need to live a holy life, God has already given that to us 
in his Son, who indwells us in the form of his Spirit. We have what we need. Are you carrying around that attitude of gratitude in you, that thankfulness for what Christ has done? Or are you bemoaning the fact that you're still doing what you don't want to do and not doing what you want to do and sitting in that despair? Or are you being thankful for what Christ has done? Are you spending more time listening to that conversation that's going on between you and yourself? Or are you being thankful for what Christ has accomplished on the cross for us? He's not going to go back on that cross and die for what you and I are going to do this coming week. He has already done that once for all time. He doesn't have to do it again. His blood was sufficient to pay for my sin, your sin, the sins of everyone who trusts in him. It was sufficient. God the Father is satisfied with the blood of his Son. That's all that is necessary to satisfy the wrath of God the Father. It's all that's necessary to satisfy the penalty that needs to be paid. Paul goes on, right after chapter 7 ends, he goes right into chapter 8. He starts out, there is therefore, because of what he's just said in chapter 7, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think the primary focus there is on there's no condemnation from God the Father's wrath on us anymore. But I think in the context of what he's saying there, there's also no condemnation from me on myself. I can't condemn myself because God the Father is satisfied with the blood of Jesus. That's an interesting phrase, now. It always intrigues me. Now there is no condemnation. When is now? It is always now. A minute from now, next week, next year, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not from God the Father, not from myself, not from anybody else around you. They don't have the ability to condemn you. There's only one who can condemn you, and that's Jesus. And he's paid the penalty for that already. So there is no condemnation for any of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's a good reason to be thankful. That's a good reason to always carry about in us 
that attitude of thanksgiving. Paul says in Thessalonians to always give thanks in everything. This is a good reason to do that, to praise him for what he's done in Jesus. Third place, and lastly, a place to look for help. It's in a verse of a song we sing from time to time here. The title is, Before the Throne of God Above. I think you'd recognize it if you, I'm not going to sing it for you, but you'd recognize the words. It's written by a lady by the name of Charity Smith. She wrote it in 1863. It's another point to that idea that sometimes old things are much better than new things. I always think new is better, but not necessarily. Not in this case, anyway. I don't know much about this lady, but I can tell from the words that she's written in the song that she knew her Savior. She knew him well. The second verse of the song goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Just pause there for a moment. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. One of the things, one of the ways that Satan tempts us is to include a tiny bit of truth to that temptation. And that's a little bit of what she's referring to here. He's referring to that guilt within. And that is true. We are guilty. We're sinners. We've committed sins. We're guilty before a holy God. But that's only part of the story. There is another side to that coin. And we have to look at both sides. So when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within... What do we do? Well, Mrs. Smith says this, Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. She's not referring to the fact that, well, I'm not going to sin anymore. That's not what she means. She simply means there's an end to the punishment for my sin. There's an end to the possibility that God's wrath is going to be imposed on me because of my sin. She recognizes that we're still going to sin because... Satan's tempting me over that, over that guilt inside of me. But upward I look and see him there who made an end to all of that. Because the sinless Savior died, my guilty soul or my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God doesn't look at us and our own attempts at righteousness. He looks at Jesus when he sees us. It's almost like you could say there's a filter over us. And God 
sees the blood of Jesus when he looks at us. So we can rejoice in that. Be encouraged by that this morning. That the blood of Jesus has done done something in us, in forgiving us, in securing a redemption for us that we could not secure on our own. But his blood is also working in us right now to cleanse us, to clean us up, to purify us, to make us like himself, one of his children. He's making us like himself. Let's pray together. Father, you have done an incredible work when you gave your life through us, for us. You gave your life as a sacrifice, a pure, holy, unblemished sacrifice that we could never accomplish on our own. Something that we cannot do, something, a debt that we could not repay to you, something that was insurmountable on our own. We could not do that, but you did that for us. You gave yourself in our place, and you're still at work in us. So, Father, help us to listen to you, listen to your spirit, to be obedient to you, to walk according to the spirit, to, in faith, to believe that what you have done, you are going to accomplish in us. We praise you for that this morning. We rejoice. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.